there, and welcome back to Take One, your daily dose of just just enough, just a little bit of Talmud. Um, friends, I have the great pleasure and honor of introducing you right now to one of the people I love most in this world, my dear friend, Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone, who is the social media editor at Chabad.org. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, the entrepreneur proprietor behind Tech Tribe, which is a community for Jews who, unlike me, actually enjoy and appreciate tech, which Mordechai very much does. Hello. Hi, how are you doing today? Excellent. Uh, before we go on, do you want to tell us where you're just coming back from? We're coming back now from Google's offices here in NYC, in New York, and we made a challah bake over there. My wife, Hannah, led about 20 Googlers in uh, kneading some dough and making some good old-fashioned challah. I think if there's any way to make technology slightly less horrible, it's basically just sending you guys out there to just make them all chill and realize that we're still people with like bodies and souls and not just pixels in the ether. Exactly, exactly. And when they had the challah with the herring at the end, that was, it was divine. <laughs> you brought the herring. Of course you brought herring. Kind of a Chabad rabbi would you be if you didn't bring herring? So listen, today we're reading page Lamed Bet, page 32. And sometimes when you read pages of Talmud, you know, I find myself just kind of very interested in the logic of it all and, and following kind of along with the discussion of the rabbis. But sometimes you come across one phrase that really stops you in your track and makes you understand that there are worlds of meaning lying there. And this page, today's page, is one of those cases. And I came across this phrase, and you're the first person I thought of, I need help with this. So basically, the rabbis are talking about prayer and to kind of uh, ascertain how prayer and asking for, for mercy and forgiveness ought to be done. They go back to one of the our examples of a person who would ask for forgiveness, not just for himself or his friends, but for the entirety of, of the people of Israel, Moses, who asks this of God atop Sinai. And then one of the rabbis says the following thing. Rava said that Rav Yitzchak said, this teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, Moses, you have given me life with your words. I'm happy that on account of your arguments, I will forgive Israel. You have given me life with your words says God to Moses. C could you explain this to me? The Lubavitcher Rebbe used to speak about how there are certain times when you look at something in the Talmud, in kind of the revealed legalistic aspect of the Torah, and the only way it can be really understood is when you pull in the kind of deeper spiritual dimensions of things. And otherwise, there's kind of one of these things, it's like, what's going on over here? And I think this is really, you know, a paradigm of that, of just this moment where it's like, you look at this and you have to delve deeper. You know, there's no other way to really understand it, I think. So the kind of the simple answer over here is that God is telling Moses that by making sure that I don't destroy the Jewish people, which is the discussion over here, and your prayers, you know, prevented me from allowing the non-Jewish nations to cast doubts about me, that um, the possibility arose that perhaps the various Gentile nations looking on would say that God was unable to bring the Jewish people out uh, into the land of Israel. That maybe when it came to leaving Egypt, that was God against one nation. The 31 nations that existed in the land of Canaan at that time, you know, maybe God was unable to do it. And therefore, right. by Moses kind of forcing God's hand or asking God to bring the Jewish people in, then through that, the, the non-Jewish nations were able to see that God had power here as well. That's kind of the simple explanation that Rashi gives in a lot of the basic 
commentators, but then there's kind of a deeper Hasidic level. Right. So in, in other words, this, the simple explanation is Moses basically asks God to say like, okay, well, we don't want people to think, okay, yeah, you were stronger than Pharaoh, but you're not stronger than all those 31 kings of all the nations in the, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. Uh, and so bring them into the promised land and everyone will see your greatest. That's the simple explanation, but there's something beneath the surface, isn't there? Right, exactly. Like with all things within kind of the Hasidic dimension, it's it's based and founded on something within the kind of the more traditional understanding. So Rav Nisim Goin, who was one of the commentators on this particular thing, says that all the students are kind of laughing and trying to figure out what's going on over here. How can Moses add life to God? So he says that God's ability to act within this world is, so to speak, one of these things that comes deeply entrenched in the essence of the creator, and that by God being able to act in this world and to be able to create these holy miracles and bring the Jewish people in, that's a revelation of God's essence. So from a, a Hasidic point of view, so to speak, Moses is saying over here is that, God, you can't destroy the Jewish people because if the Jewish people somehow are, are, are missing from the scene or missing from this picture and not brought into the land of Israel, then the world will be unable to see the continued miracle that is the Jewish people, is, you know, this, this nation that you have. And that through this intrinsic connection that we have with God, obviously everyone is connected to God, but through the intrinsic connection and relationship we have to God, the continuity of the Jewish people is itself a revelation of the continuity of the Creator. And that through our continued presence, that's like the divine presence still being here. So it's literally giving life to God. So let me see if, if I got this right. So basically the argument goes something like this. It says, look, God's presence, God's might, God's magnificence isn't and should never be just a sort of ephemeral abstract notion that no one could see, hear, or feel. It is manifested here in the world. And the way that it's manifested is through the continuous and miraculous and sort of against all odds existence of one very small particular people that for some reason is chosen to to do God's work. Right, exactly. In essence, obviously, God doesn't need us per se, but through our continuity, we are a testament to this miraculous being that is God. And so we are really kind of his, um, to use a, a favorite term that I learned from Chabad, of course, we're his shluchim, right? We're his emissaries here here in this world. Exactly, exactly. In Hasidic thought, it goes more so, it says that the soul is a chelik elokami mal mamish, that the soul is a part of God. And that's obviously every soul, every living thing is connected to God. And therefore, when you have the soul, it really is a direct emanation of God. It's, it's in Hebrew, it's mamish, mamash. It, it has almost substance to it. It, it is a, a shtik ebishter, as you say in Yiddish. You know, it's a, a little piece of God. Um, and therefore, the continued presence of the soul in this world continually brings down and makes God manifest in this world as well. What responsibilities does this immense recognition bestow upon us if there's a little part of god in our soul and if we have the power as we learn from today's page of really kind of you know enlivening god here on earth how does that decree that we should live behave and, and be here on earth i mean if you think about it this way if everything around you is a revelation of godliness then how could you be destructive to the world? You know, not only to nature and to the, the physical creations around you, but to other living things, to other people, to have hate or to treat other people with disregard. You're disregarding the creator, you know, and, and therefore it really is this, this vision where everything has godliness in it and therefore everything should be treated with that reverence and respect. And you, that includes yourself, that sometimes we can look, kind of look down on ourselves and say, you know, what kind of Jew am I? What kind of person am I? Do I really have this ability to be able to do dafyomi, to study the Talmud for seven years, or to study the Rambam, or to, you know, to do, put on tefillin, or any mitzvah, any good deed that's out there, we can kind of doubt ourselves. And it's, no, you are a part of God. You are this divine, ephemeral, you know, you know being, and that, you know, obviously you have the power to do it, because, you know, 
you can't put limits on God, and therefore you can't put limits on yourself. So let me ask you to sign us off by by telling our listeners a story that you had told me a, a while back, and that has always stayed with me. It's a story that involves lamplighters. So this story is one that, um, it's actually one of my favorite. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, used to travel around for various health reasons and also to really help the Jewish people. He lived at a time, the transition between the 19th century and the 20th century, there were a lot of pogroms, the Tsar was falling, and the Jewish people in Russia needed a lot of help to you know, be able to survive. And so he used to travel abroad out of Russia to raise funds and bring awareness to the plight of the Jewish people in Russia. And so one winter, I believe it was 1903, he was in the town of Würzburg in Germany with a small group of chassidim. It's Friday night, and everybody, you know, davens, everybody prays, and then they sit down, and they have this, you know, Shabbat meal, and they say, L'chaim, and they're forbringing, as, you know, chassidim are wont to do. They're gathering together, singing songs, and inspiring each other. And the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, is, is still praying. And when he, uh, you know, he finishes praying, and he sits down, he's, you know, everyone gathers around him to hear what he has to say. And the conversation gets real, you know, I mean, it's a real moment. And so one of the chassidim that's there says, you know, Rebbe, what does it mean to be a chassid? Now, obviously, this was a very existential question. It wasn't like, you know, look, man, look in the mirror. You got a beard, you have payas, you have a yamulka. No, it was, it was something deeper. And he wanted to know, how do I live up to, this, to the standards of who I'm supposed to be? How can I truly reach my purpose and my essence? The Rebbe looks at him, the fifth Rebbe looks at him and says, to be a chassid is to be a lamplighter. Because, you know, this is, you know, the turn of the century. People didn't have electric lighting, so there were still gas lamps on the street. And every night, somebody had a job of taking a torch and walking from lamp to lamp and igniting it and taking that fire and bringing it from one lamp to the next. And so, to be a chassid, this doesn't just mean someone who, you know, is a lababacher or anything else. It means anyone, any, any person in the world, you know, not even just Jews, has that ability to reach that level of piety, to go and to take the torch and take the fire and bring it out and, and kindle that flame and, and, and bring that spark of godliness into the world. And so this chassid kind of pushes back and says, but Rebbe, what if the lamp is out in the middle of the desert? So the Rebbe looks at him and says, if it's out in the middle of the desert, then you have to go to the desert. What are you sitting here you know, in, in, in Würzburg? Go to the <laughs> desert, take your lamp, take your fire, and, and, and light it. And then the desert itself will be illuminated. You're going to take this cold, dark place full of snakes and scorpions and, and all these negative things, and you're going to bring a little light there. So he says, but Rebbe, what if it's out at sea? Without at sea, then you go to the ocean, you take off your, your clothes, you jump in with a torch, and you swim to that lighthouse, you swim to that lamp, and you kindle it. So then this, this chassid took it very seriously. So he said, but Rebbe, when I look at other people, I don't see the lamps in them. I don't see the, the godly fire that exists in these people, you know, the, the manifestation of the living God. You know, what should I do? So then, you know, the Rebbe looked at him and said, if you don't see the lamp in the other person, if you don't see the potential for godliness and goodness in those you encounter— and that's a problem with you. It's not a problem with them. They're there. Their candle is there. It may need to be lit, but it's waiting. If you don't see that, then you have to work on yourself. You have to refine yourself. Because somebody who's unrefined can't see the refinement in others. If you become refined, if you work on yourself to become a more sensitive person, you'll pick up the sensitivities in those other people and see the godliness that exists within them and be able to kindle their fire. Rabbi Lightstone, I meant to that. And thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoyed this show, please go rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly section of Reading Dafyomi. I'm your host, Leah Leibowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope you've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon.